This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover of Shankanis Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of real estate and law. And speaking of entertaining discussion, today we have a repeat guest. We have Bob Cavoto of 2020 Foresight and 2020 Executive. And he's, we had him back on the show because he was one of our most popular episodes. He's an executive recruiter, and he has a unique perspective because he speaks with all of these CEOs of real estate companies, and he also speaks with the executives who are trying to get these positions and helps coach them in their executive search as well as place executives for the real estate companies. So he, he really has a pulse on the real estate market and just a great feel for uh, for people and for how people can further their careers and their lives. So his first episode was extremely popular. It was uh, well regarded and I've gotten a lot of compliments on it over the years. So when he said that he was willing to come back on and talk a little bit about the current real estate environment, uh, we were happy to have him. So he, he talks about interviewing, uh, how to have a successful interview and how to have a successful career. And I realized that this, these topics are applicable to everyone because even if you're not interviewing for a current real estate position, his themes and his advice is applicable to sales pitches if you're trying to get business from a third party, if you're trying to get promoted within your own company, if you're trying to do all sorts of things. As, as we say in the podcast, everyone is interviewing for something. So Sit back, relax, enjoy this podcast. It's a blast. It it goes for about 50 minutes, but it's nonstop fire from Mr. Kaboto, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I am your host, Phil Coover, and we have with us one of our uh, first return customers, Bob Cavoto of 2020 Foresight. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me again. It's a pleasure. Bob, as I was telling Bob before we got started here, his first episode is uh, one of the most um, widely regarded and complimented episodes that we have. Bob is a very popular podcast guest so we're excited to get him back when he said he wanted to come back on we're excited to, to have you here thank you um as you heard in my introduction before we got going bob is an executive recruiter and having talked to people on both the employer side and the employee side all the time bob has a unique perspective on the industry and what's what's happening in the industry and understands both sides of the table so it's it's important that we have him on the show um, we're going to talk about the real estate market and the current economy, but Bob, I, I really want to get into some of your your topics here on uh, on how, what to accomplish in the first interview, because as I was th I've been in the same firm for 13 years and I've been on the employer side sort of the past three or four years as a partner, and I was thinking I was like I haven't I've done more interviewing than interviews, but everyone is interviewing for something. I mean, what would I go for a lunch and I'm pitching business for my firm? I'm being interviewed. So, um, and it, yeah, like I said, everyone's interviewing for something. So you help people interview and get jobs and on both sides. So tell us about what people should be trying to accomplish. Well, uh, first a little, uh, a plug for our, for our businesses. Yes. Uh, I have two businesses, 2024 site executive search, which is retained executive search in the real estate and financial services businesses. Uh, secondly, uh, we have another business we started 18 years ago, but really took off right after the 2008 depression, recession, or whatever you want to call it. And that's 2024 site executive marketing and job finding and what that is it's where executive executives pay us a fee to take over their job search so the reason why I mentioned those two things uh, the second one executive marketing and job finding is where we coach people to find uh, their next job or a better job 
And part of that coaching um, is involves, and part of that process involves interview coaching. And it's amazing to me how uh, top executives who find themselves unemployed uh, can't interview well. And I go through th three basic principles of interviewing. Uh, we teach a lot more in our coaching program, but there's three basic uh, you know, principles of interviewing. The first one, and although it seems uh, rather uh, obvious, is to be liked. Sure. And people say, well, Bob, uh, that's not important. And I tell them, gee, um, I've had clients, um, executive you know, uh, firms, real estate firms and financial services firms, interview some of my candidates, and they've said, uh, this person is very well qualified, Bob, but I don't know what it is. I don't like them. Sure. And when you think about likability, and people say, well, Bob, how do I be liked? And I tell them usually it's a simple thing to do. Mirror the person you're interviewing. So if you're interviewing with a real folksy kind of person, you're almost as folksy as that person. If you're interviewing something very, someone very businesslike and authoritative, you're almost as businesslike and authoritative. If you're interviewing with someone whose LinkedIn profile uh, is, uh, has an image of very buttoned up and shirt and tie and suit, you arrive in a shirt and tie and suit. If you're interviewing with someone who's very casual, you come in a sport coat. You don't go as casual as they are. But um, a lot of people, when I say this during my seminar, saying, well, Bob, I can see through that. And I tell them, I'm an experienced interviewer myself. But I tend to pass through to my clients people that I like. Now, why do I like them when I really think about it afterwards they're like me that's the reason why i like them right so um that's the first thing the second thing in an interview is um, to gain credibility you've got to be believable now how do you gain credibility in an interview if someone asks a question in an interview a reasonable Answer the question. If you're ambiguous or if you're funny, you may not know it, but it records in the interviewer's mind that, you know what, I'll give you a pass on that one. And then I'll ask another question. But if you're ambiguous again, and again, you're not typically not fooling anyone, you lose credibility. Now, the way to gain credibility is to answer a reasonable question with an answer, but to give details that you don't have to give. Anyone in an interview where I ask a question and they answer it, but then they go, well, here's what I've done here, here, and here. Or, gee, with that you know, particular job, the reason why I left because I thought you know, the person that I reported to was, was a bit dysfunctional. Now, you don't want to say totally dysfunctional, but a bit. And then I might ask, well, where? And they give me some examples. If somebody gives me details in an interview where they don't have to give me details, I tend to believe almost everything they say. Sure. And then the third thing, and it's funny, the third most important thing is competence. Because in the end... I'm going to say <clears throat> interviews, <clears throat> even with the most experienced interviewers, are fake and phony environments. Now, they someone, are, I had right? HR people all over the world saying, gee, you're wrong. And I would say it's an atmosphere where someone who is trying to determine within an hour whether you're going to be a good long-term employee for that company. 
and it simply can't be done in an hour. It's also, you know, if you start off with an HR person or a screener for the CEO, if you ask the person who is screening you before you get to the second or third round, if you ask that person who's the interviewer, explain this job to me that you're interviewing uh, Bob for. Over half of them couldn't explain the job. So, and they're trying to screen you for the next couple of rounds. So, the, and when I give this advice, people tell me, well, Bob, I'm not being me, I'm not being genuine. And I tell them, I don't want you to be fake and phony, but interviews are fake and phony, but I want you to get past the first or second round and there's certain rules, follow my rules, and by the third or fourth round, they get to know you a little bit more as a person, then you can be more genuine. Sure. So the reason why I have a job is because the interviewing process and the evaluation process is flawed. Why is it flawed? Because there are humans involved. That's why. So to recap, it's likability, it's credibility, and it's competence. That's it in an interview. That's great, Bob. I, I have several follow-up questions. <laughs> I love the three principles here. Uh, one thing that I was saying, uh, be liked. Uh, I love that you would say if someone is folksy or if someone is buttoned up, business person be almost as much. You didn't say be that, mirror it exactly, you said almost as much. And that was you have to be somewhat genuine in your mirroring. Right. Yeah. Well, because that was leading to my next point is uh, you often hear people just be yourself. But if you're trying to mirror someone, are you being yourself? Um, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I find. So and it kind of, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but it kind of goes. What I have trouble with on a sales pitch is if somebody were to say, Phil, give me your pitch on Shank Annis, Tepper Campbell. I can, I can launch into a 15-minute thing about why I think that we're the best. What I have trouble with or why I think we do a great job, we'd work well with you, and, and I could explain that. But what I have trouble with it, if I'm out to lunch with someone is that's not a normal human interaction to launch into a 15-minute right. soliloquy about why you think you're so great. Um, and so I just don't do it because I'm a kid from DeKalb and I'm a modest kid and I don't want to launch into a 15-minute speech about how great I am or we are. Um, so how, so the, the, the issue I always have is how do I get past, because a normal human being, you would listen to someone, you would talk about you know, sports or the weather or how right. their family's doing, is uh, how do you be liked but also get points across that you want to get across in order to, uh, to explain why you should be hired? Or is it more important just to be liked? Well, if, you know, if, as I rank in the important things to accomplish in an interview, number one is I like this person. Yeah. And, and I can't stress that enough. And uh, the key is, though, in mirroring is to get, you know, you may start off with small talk, and you should, to get the feel for the person. So if they're going towards authoritative and business-like, then, okay, here we go. We're going to be authoritative and business-like. Right. If they're going towards folksy, then you do that. The other thing, though, is sometimes my clients are in group interviews where they're interviewing you, and there's three or four people in the room, so you have a tough time mirroring. Sure. So... Usually you get the mood of the room because there is an alpha male or an alpha female in the room. And the, find out who the alpha male and the alpha female is and then adjust to them. Another big mistake, though, in group interviews is this. And men tend to do this more often than women because we coach equally men and women. Is if there's an alpha male or female interviewing you in a group interview, they only talk to that alpha. They don't acknowledge anybody else. <laughs> so in a group interview, the way we coach is someone asks a question of the four. 
you start off the answer staring at them, you go on with your answer staring at everyone else, and then when you finish, you come back to them. In a group setting, body language is the fourth major thing, which is a lot of people forget about the other people in the room. Then when they caucus afterwards is two of those other people who aren't alphas say, I didn't like this guy. Well, why? they never talked to me. I mean, they right. ignored me. And that happens quite a bit. Yeah, I'm sure that it does. Um, I probably got you off track here. I'm sorry. Oh, you know, the thing about interviewing Bob is most times I'm active listening, but when you start talking, I just start taking notes. I just, <laughs> I just start writing down. Like, I've got a list. Of, like, I've, the, I've I looked at, like, before. why am I taking notes? I'm <laughs> recording this. I can come right back to it. Um, but what would you say for, I have a couple of tricks for body language that I always pay attention to is I have a tendency to fold my arms and I know that that is, uh, that's just comfortable for me. But I, when I'm in a business setting, I have to force myself not to do it because it's standoffish. But, uh, what other types of body language items do you coach your people? Well, I, I talk about when I have some clients, um, in coaching that um, I could pay, I could play their interview tapes, coaching tapes uh, at night and I'd fall asleep, it would help me get to sleep at night. <laughs> they're, they're, they're that bad. Um, the modulation of your voice to go up and then come down. And you match cadence with the person. That's the other way you mirror. So if someone speaks really fast, you speak almost as fast. If someone speaks really slow, you're not as slow as them. So a lot of it is voice modulation. You come down, you come up, you show energy, you get up off your chair. Um, you know, you might be sitting back, then you sit up straight, then you lean in, and various movements. But all of this must be not um, forced. It's got to be part of your natural demeanor. And with half of my clients, it's got to be learned. Because we might have a CEO who's never had to, um, you know, uh, act for an interview. And they are who they are. And I tell them, you're going to get killed in this interview with the board. We've got to liven it up here. So... Anyway, I hope I answered sure. your question. No, it's good. I, I want your your other thoughts on something. Something I always have in my mind is um, I once read a book. It's called The Charisma Myth uh, that was sent to me. And I'm going to butcher this story. But it's a story of there is an English princess, and she was interviewing for uh, suitors. Uh, and so she met with a couple princes from around the land, and she met with the first prince, and they went out on a date. And then when she came back home, her, her maid or something asked her how it went, and she said, he was the most intelligent person I've ever met. He had all the wealth in the land, and he was extremely smart and dashing and handsome. And then she went out with the next prince, and the prince, and she came home, and the maid said, what, uh, how did the date go? And she said, he made me feel like I was the most intelligent person in all the land. And so obviously she selected the second person. And so that's sort of a, a position that I've, I've always taken as a good thing to do is to try to make the other person feel good about themselves and spend less time worrying about how great you are and whether you're getting across your points. But I feel like on an interview or a sales pitch, I always feel pressure to try to get across my points and I and this goes back to the same question of likability versus competence. But how did you feel about, about those topics? Well, I think uh, part of charisma is, and I tell people in interviews, it's not about, you know, if you do it in an interview, you're interviewing for a job. It's not about you. It's about the job. So um, the way to get charisma, I think, in a relationship is it's not about you, it's about the job or the other person. To ask questions about whether their business life, their personal life, and that immediately, and then to find um, 
in an interview, don't force it, commonality of experiences, whether it be in business or your personal lives, but it can't be forced. Now, if someone is authoritative and business-like, you can find commonality in business experiences, but not personal. Mm. If someone is folksy, you can find commonality in both, and where it's not forced, talk about it. That's good. That's really good advice. So I'm going to switch topics a little bit, but if you want to know how to interview uh, better and um, work on that aspect, as Bob mentioned, they help people with that. So it, contact Bob. It usually takes about, um, it's two or three sessions a week, face-to-face, over the phone, and FaceTime or Skype. And at the end of a month, someone is good. However, I find two weeks after that, they slip into their old, old habits, and then we have a refresher course. So anyway. Sure, sure. But it, it is interesting that people that are executives and uh, have succeeded so far, everyone needs help preparing for these things. Some of these skills, as we mentioned, are not natural skills, and they don't, uh, they're not, not something that you normally work on in your everyday business life. So the other topic that we want to discuss is how do we have a successful career? So once you get that job, or as you're working through various jobs, what is your opinion about how to have a successful career? Well, I'm going to talk about what I think um, is the prototype um, of a successful career. And um, a lot of things I say, you know, half the people out there, or 80% of them, will disagree with. Um, it's just like I said in our last session, is 80% of corporate America is dysfunctional, and, and probably 80% of the people out there disagree. But a career progression, I think, when you graduate from college, should go like this. Um, if you should be so lucky, you should try to work for a good institutional quality company that has great organization, great documentation, great management ability, and great leadership. Now, that can be found at in dysfunctional ways in our largest corporations in the world and in America, and it can be found in a small to medium-sized company. Now, where I learned to be analytical, organized, and work ethic was I started out with Arthur Anderson. And, you know, coming out of Illinois, which is at that time, and still is, the top accounting school in the nation, I thought I knew everything. And it took me two years at Arthur Anderson to figure out um, Illinois gave me a great education was only beginner's knowledge. And that's the other myth about our MBA uh, kind of environment we're in. You've got to go get an MBA. And when I have search clients saying, well, Bob, we, you know, we need an MBA for this position. And I tell them, but you're only getting beginner's knowledge. And they go, well, no, they've got an MBA from uh, Cornell or Ivy League school or Big Ten school. And I go, that's just beginner's knowledge. And they go, I I don't get what you're saying, Bob. What I'm saying is this. Good institutional quality experience for the first 5 to 10 to 15 years out of college trumps. I hate to use that word Trump, but uh, I hate that word Trump. Different meeting now. Uh, I'm getting political. I won't, I'll stop there. Trump's um, the most elite college education that's out there. Now, most people would disagree with me, and the people that disagree um, haven't seen, um, haven't placed over 700 executives in 20 years, and haven't uh, gotten 600 executives' jobs in those 20 years. So I view good institutional quality experience for the first at least five, if not 10, if not 15 years of vital importance. 
if someone goes to college or doesn't go to college, but they work for a small mom-pop shop, that might be fine. But they're not learning the processes, the procedures, the management, the organization, um, and the leadership that they see in other companies. Plain and simple. Um, having worked for Arthur Anderson, and we all know what happened to Arthur Anderson, and you could see it in their culture why it happened to Arthur Anderson and they dissolved, was their culture was highly political and overlooked some things. But Anderson wasn't like any other company. They were like Price Waterhouse, but Anderson got clipped. But what I learned at Anderson was uh, analysis. Ask why, find out why. If you're gonna say something, have spreadsheets to support what you're saying. Sure. And I think people coming out of even the best schools, if they don't have that institutional quality experience, they're missing a vital piece that education doesn't pick up. Even if you graduate from Harvard, it doesn't. Yeah, that's great advice. All, all my friends that, I have a few that went to the Deloitte's and PWC's of the world, and then they put their time in, and it was a lot of time on a daily basis, but that it's, it's led into uh, many other opportunities for them, having had that solid background. Well, we just uh, hired a person away from Goldman uh, Sachs recently who had an undergrad from Rutgers, which is a good school. Yes. Um, the reason why he was hired over an Ivy League person from a smaller investment bank is he had Goldman for seven years. And at Goldman, um, if you don't die before the seven years you were there, uh, you, have, you have got training that cannot be duplicated with a Harvard MBA. Now, unfortunately, with all of the marketing behind the Harvard MBA and the MBA programs, 80% of the public out there thinks a Harvard MBA trumps a Goldman seven years. It doesn't. Sure. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about law school. Like, there, are, I've seen a lot of lawyers that went to great schools and went to sub-prime uh, schools, and it's it's interesting now, ten years out, to see the ones that have succeeded and the ones that um, law school, unfortunately for the price, is also beginner's knowledge. It's just like learning the language and how to think through <laughs> things, but you really come out of it. Um, only prepared to start your education. <laughs> so, all right, so we have a great training at a prime institution. What, what's next for the, our successful well, career person? Well, um, you, uh, what I advise people, and I have a lot of people in larger companies um, that I advise, uh, and they tell, uh, I tell them you have to play politics, but don't be a politician. And they go, well, what do you mean by that? And I tell them, um, if you're confused by that statement, you know, when you're faced with it, talk to me. And um, you're talking with a person here who, um, through his Anderson, Merrill Lynch, and being a CFO of Duchess Y Industries, um, uh, is um, I wasn't a good politician, and that's the reason why I have my own company. Um, there are people in organizations that they've gotten their positions through sheer politics. It's amazing, but they have. And there are people who are truly great performers that if they say they're not politicians, I say, and many of them are my clients, I tell them there, are time, uh, there comes a time from time to time where you've got to be a politician and you have to either ignore something that might be a minor um, uh, issue, whether it be with another executive, or you might have to placate someone um, and say something's wonderful when it's really not to get ahead in your career. 
However, never compromise your material principles in your business life. We place people at companies where six months later or a year later, you know, mostly CFOs, um, that call me up and say, Bob, they're doing this, this, and that. And I s tell them, um, basically, they're jaywalking. You know, I wouldn't turn them in for jaywalking. Uh, it's, it's, it's not cool. It's not major. Um, go home, have a glass of wine, and talk to me in a week, and it won't be a big issue. And I have some people who tell me about issues, and I tell them, well, um, do you think the CEO is going to fix that issue? No. And I tell them, well, in the next three or four months, we've got to find you another job. So <laughs> what I mean by, uh, by politics is, uh, and I, I coach people during this, is in interviews. They go, well, Bob, I want to tell them I'm honest, I'm trustworthy, and I'm filled with integrity. And I said, if you dwell on that, they won't hire you. And they go, why won't they hire me? And I go, I wouldn't hire you if you told me that. Well, why not? Um, I don't want someone who works for me who's going to turn me in for jaywalking. Because, you know, jaywalking, you know, is you could get a ticket for that. And in California, I've seen people get tickets for jaywalking. <laughs> um, if you're going to turn me in for jaywalking, I don't want to employ you. So... Um, you want to say you're honest and trustworthy and all those things, but don't emphasize it too much because someone might think, uh, you know, uh, this person is so tight, they'll never do well here. Sure. Sure. So. No, that's great. I, I wrote it down. Play, play <laughs> politics, but don't be a politician. It's great. I also love how you build, you build credibility, and so you – weaved in your background in your prior positions and working at Arthur Anderson and being the CFO of the company in a very casual sentence. That was a great example of how you establish that credibility without saying, look at what I've done. I'm CFO of this company. I've done this. Um, you know, you, you build it like that. And that's, a, I mean, that's also what we coach for being a lawyer is you have to have a grasp of the facts and so if you're explaining to a judge something and you can hit those dates and the amounts precisely to the dollar you're not rounding up it builds credibility by having a firm grasp of those facts um, just to kind of go back to that other point but all right so we have to play politics but don't be a politician I think I know what that means um, just out of curiosity what is a you said a minor thing is jaywalking, but there are some things that people come to you and you say, well, we got to get you a new job. What's an example of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one recently. Um, What's the name? No. Well, um, um, they're doing a major project and uh, there's a construction loan. And um, I'm going to get a little bit technical. You know, there are construction loan draw statements so that every month or every two months, they got to draw money from that construction loan, but they have to support it by what has been spent on the building. And if part of those expenses are fake companies that the developer has set up to draw extra cash out of that construction loan, um, that's loan fraud. Now, if it's, you know, 5,000 bucks, so what? If it accumulates to greater than 5 million, you know, that's criminal fraud. Right. Get out of there. Yeah. So, now, a lot of people would say that just doesn't happen. Well, um, <clears throat> it, it happens more than you, you really know. Sure. So, and a lot of it is degree, is a lot of people, you know, are, if it was $5,000, they'd walk out the door. And I'd say 5000 on a $50 million construction loan. So what? $5 million on a $50 million construction loan, that's material. Right. 
So things like that. So that's when, yeah. So that that is definitely not jaywalking, and that's when they call you and say, "Let's start start looking for another job." Right. Um, so aside from the the firm background in corporate America, having a good company with good management, play politics. Do you have any other any other advice for building a successful career? Well, uh, I think um, doing the right thing. And treating people fairly um, leads to a successful psychological life and to eventually a successful business life. Um, However, have I seen people who are not very nice and are very greedy be on the top CEOs of companies quite a bit. And the reason why I mentioned psychological, um, we have over 400 search clients worldwide. And I meet a lot of CEOs. And well over half of them are at the top of the mountain, uh, income and wealth wise, but they're not happy. Yes, I've seen that. And they're miserable people. Um, The ones that I see that are truly happy are fair and compassionate, and they do the right things. And a lot of people think, well, this half of the CEOs, they're SOBs. They're not good people, and that's the way to be. And that may get you to the top seat. However, I don't think they're happy people. And I have seen people with enormous wealth that are simply not happy. And what I advise people about their own personal lives is you have to have enough money to be happy, but happiness is more important than whether you're worth a million dollars or you're unhappy at $500 million, you're an unhappy person. And uh, I see a lot of people like that. So what I advise people, and, and some t- when I advise, and I advise six CEOs, and they ask me, Bob, what should I be? What kind of person should I be? What kind of CEO? And I go, well, I've seen two types. You can be compassionate fair and do the right thing and half the time people will uh, screw you over because of it and when that happens never change who you are and you'll be successful other people say uh, I care about the bottom line I don't care about people and I don't care what it takes to get there and I tell them well there's a way to manage that way I personally think you're going to be unhappy at the end. So having enough money in your life and doing the right thing leads to happiness. A lot of people uh, look at different models where the CEO is just not a good person. Um, 95% of those people are simply not happy people in their entire life. So, I think that's great advice. Yeah. You- you remind me of, I, I like that you give that advice and you're not just trying to help accomplish um, whatever the specific objective is at hand. Um, I have this uh, very flamboyant Puerto Rican accountant and every, wife, every year my wife and I meet with, uh, meet with Nelson to do our, do our taxes and he always gives us like three life lessons and so we always joke that we go to Nelson for our taxes and for our, our three life lessons <laughs> and you kind of reminded me of that but you walk out and you're like you know he's right like those are very good lessons um, but I, I'm glad that you counsel people that way what what there's one other thing I want to say is when people talk about trustworthy and lying and doing the right thing um, one of the things I've learned in our evaluations of people We have used a psychologist out of Cincinnati for like 19 years. And uh, we give aptitude tests. And we give 
you know, personality tests. And then part of that test involves how much you lie. And when our psychologist, when we first started uh, using this psychologist, I asked him, well, why do you gauge how much someone lies? And he said, Bob, everybody on this planet lies. Very few admit it, but everyone lies. And I said, well, how do you test for trustworthiness? And he said, Bob, people can lie, but be trustworthy. And on our test, we test for how much they lie and what they lie about. And if they're off the charts, don't hire them. But if they're kind of a medium to low liar, hire them. So when I listen to people and they talk about integrity and trustworthiness and stuff like, or, or lying, I usually discard all of that because Everyone on this planet hopefully only lies about little things. The people that can get you in trouble are the people who lie about big things. So, sure. last sure. word of advice. Yeah, actually, there's a, I listened to an interview once with an author who was a psychologist. It was about, like, it was called something to the effect of the business of lying. Of the, that everyone lies 10, 15 times a day. You know, how are you doing today? I'm good. You're not good, but you just lied. Um, it also, I remember when my wife and I were getting married, every venue consultant, every person we met, there was this, would start their sentence with, let me be honest with you, comma, and then say what they're going to say, or I'm not going to lie to you, comma, whatever somebody says, I'm not going to lie to you, or let me be honest, comma, and then say, immediately in my head, I'm thinking this is a lie. Yeah. Like, if you just said you're not going to lie, that means, it either means that this is the only truthful part. Thing you're going to say today right. or this is the lie so i want to talk to you about the uh the current economy and this current situation because you are out there you are talking with the ceos of all these different real estate companies you are talking with the real estate executives and we talked to you last year a little bit about this but um how do you think the real estate market is is doing and how is the the job search out there for people well um I'm going to talk about the overall economy, and then I am going to uh, focus down the real estate. Um, the overall economy, um, previous to our recent uh, tax changes, uh, was running well. And I describe it as a nice little uh, fire in, in a fireplace. Burning well, there's enough wood on the logs. Um, what the, I think the tax changes coming through will th throw gasoline on that fire. It's going to burn really hot uh, for the next year, maybe two years. And then I see a slowdown. Um, a lot of people, younger people, say it will never slow down. And I tell them, gee, I'm in my 60s. It's going to slow down. And um, older people say, gee, it's 2006 again. Uh, right, yeah. you know, two years before it blew up in 2008 and 9. Now, I don't think it'll blow up in 2008 or 9 because the banks um, are well capitalized, and the reason why is regulation. So um, now, if they undo some of that regulation, look out. Sure, it, it will get. And people have said, Bob, they won't do that again. And I tell them, uh, I think they, you throw some money out there, you take down the regulation, it's going to get crazy. So I, I view uh, the overall economy is going to slow down probably in 2019, uh, uh, mid to late or early 2020. Our business right now uh, for the last two years has been the best it's ever been. Um, as it stands right now, it is still very, very strong. However, I see cracks in certain places. Uh, New York has slowed down considerably. Really? Washington, D.C. has slowed down considerably. Uh, Chicago was on fire. It's starting to slow down. Uh, Los Angeles 
um, is starting to slow down a little bit. And I noticed that from inquiries for searches. Typically, we might have 35 to 40 inquiries a month, um, firm-wide. And now we're, we're kind of down to 20 or 22. And the, the example I give about crashes is this. In 2003, in July of 2003, when things, the new you know, tax cuts came in, uh, back in the Bush years, um, we, my little medium-sized firm, we had like 60 inquiries for new searches in July of 2003. Wow. In July, and we had like 25 sign-ups, signed contracts for searches. In July of 2008, no new inquiries, no new signups, and I knew the poop was going to hit the fan like really quick. Yeah. So what I see right now is I see a slowing down. I don't see a total meltdown like we had in 2008 and 2009 for the overall economy. For real estate, um, the tax changes will artificially artificially pump up real estate demand and building in the United States, even though I don't see the demand there. And you can see it in certain sectors, which is multifamily apartment. Uh, you can look around in Chicago, and Chicago had the most building, the most cranes out of up out of any city in the United States. Uh, have they overbuilt? Yes. Will these new tax changes, uh, which benefits real estate and real estate pass-throughs, uh, continue the party? Yes. Will it continue the party artificially? Yes. Will it slow down in 2019? Yes. So, and I see that spreading around the country because uh, with the exception of New York uh, and D.C. that had their upturn in I'd say 13, 14, and 15, and they started to slow down in 16, slowed down in 17, are even slower today. Uh, the rest of the country in 15, 16, and 17 started big time up. Um, I see them slowing down. But because of these tax changes, um, it'll be artificially pumped up, and there's going to be, um, in even the hottest market, um, uh, foreclosure activity uh, probably in 2019 because they simply overbuilt. Now, the good thing is the amount of equity in most of the stuff that's being built is substantial. But um, that's what I, I see. Is, things are great now. I see a natural slowdown in 2019. A couple of markets are insulated. The San Francisco market defies logic. Yes. Uh, and that's all high tech. Uh, Seattle is uh, all high tech and Amazon. And then whoever gets this Amazon second world headquarters um, will be, it'll be interesting in that um, I think it's going to drive up prices in that metro area. And it's going to take years before they come up to 50,000 employees. I kind of think it's overblown. And then I've heard other companies say, when Amazon cuts their deal with whoever city, I'm going to that city and saying, where's mine? Now, I read an article from Jamie Dimon, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, said, we're going to find out, well, soon we'll find out where Amazon's going, and then we're going to that city and say, where's mine? Sure, yeah. And um, one of the, and that corp, that kind of corporatism that I call it, and it's, you know, I don't call it that, I read it, is, is going to be harmful because um, it's paying off, it's, you know, basically bribery to get something there, they get the best deal in town, and big companies like J.P. Morgan are saying, where's mine? 
So the economy's doing great. It will do great. Now, the reason, one of the other reasons why it's done, done well is I've been to Europe and Asia in the last six months. They're humming. I mean, those economies are going great guns. Right. Uh, when we slow down, they'll slow down. But we are going to slow down in late 2019, 2020. Yeah, I, I, that's a very compelling case. I'm completely with you. Um, two other things to mention along those lines are we're also starting to see cracks. Not, nothing crazy, but a few more mortgage foreclosures here, a few more companies defaulting on uh, their agreements there. And so we're just starting to see some of the cracks that were more prevalent in the 2008 to 2013 years uh, start to come back. I, mean, I knew a mortgage foreclosure firm that was very successful from 2008 to 2013. And then they didn't, I was talking to one of the partners in 2016 and they didn't have any work anymore. And so they ended up basically dissolving and they all left for a bigger firm um, in 2017. And then, but I'm starting to see some of that work come back for sure. And the other thing that you didn't mention is the interest rates. If the interest rates are starting to creep and that's gonna have a downward pressure on prices and it's also gonna, it's gonna do two things. The prices of real estate is gonna decline uh, because as the, as the rates go up, the money is more expensive and it's also secondarily gonna draw out some of the demand for real estate that has been artificially there over the past, well, artificially or not, it's been there because they couldn't, institutional investors couldn't get money in other markets and bond markets and, and other sorts of markets. So it was, that money was placed into real estate, which also drove the prices up by the increased demand. And so if interest rates go up, there's gonna be less demand and the money is going to be more expensive to finance the deals. So you're probably gonna have a ripple effect there as well as the, uh, the ongoing retail saga, which is either completely overblown or understated, depending on who you talk to. I, I have retail uh, real estate clients, and um, I, I think it's overblown, although you know rents are coming down in retail. But prime retail is still okay. Yes. Uh, but um, has retail been significantly overbuilt in the United States. Oh my gosh. I mean, everywhere you, we might as well make the United States one big strip mall or one big, uh, you know, uh, retail center because everywhere you go, you see retail everywhere. So it's way overbuilt. It will come down slowly and those buildings will be repurposed. So. All right, Bob, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, do you have any other topics you want to hit today? Well, you know, nothing I can think of other than um, a career is based on um, the things I mentioned previously, but uh, I, I advise all of my clients, um, you'll be a happy person if you're fair, decent, relatively honest, Take good care of people, be compassionate, and really work extremely hard. Um, when I have executives who are interviewing with my executive search clients, and I had one the other day who said, gee, Bob, you know, I want, uh, and it was a it's a job in downtown L.A. managing a big project in downtown L.A. And... Uh, it's a $400,000 a year job, base salary, big job. Yes. And uh, discussing the job uh, with this person, I said, this is going to be a minimum of a 50-hour week, but probably around a 60-hour week. And um, their response was, well, maybe for the first three months, but I'm so smart and I'm so efficient that I only have to work 35 or 40. And my response was, um, no. Um, I see some people, and usually younger people, who think um, an executive job can be done in 40 hours. It can't. And anyone who says 
you know, the words of wisdom, my wisdom, is I can do my executive job and make a half million dollars a year and I only need 40 hours a week, it just doesn't happen. For an executive to progress in their career, the last element is work ethic. They've got to work 50, sometimes 55, and occasionally 60 hours a week. And if you don't want to put in the time, you're not going to progress. And if you think you're smarter than everyone else and more efficient, um, that's just not the way it works. Almost every executive job we place now is a 50 to 60 hour a week job. That's it. So. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense to me. Um, I think also just with technology these days, especially in the executive role, I know in a, in a legal role, your availability is almost nonstop. So you end up working 50, 60 hours a week just because people need you uh, during that time period. So you, you don't really have the time off. It, it's be almost impossible only work 35 hours a week. Um, but along those lines, I, I once had a, a partner at a big firm, and I'll give him credit. His name's Glenn Munson of Smith Munson, who told me, this was probably like seven, eight years ago, but what he, he was giving me advice over a cocktail, and he said, Phil, the only thing that you can do is work harder than everyone else. You know, there, there's always going to be someone with a better education. There's always going to be someone who went to Harvard or someone who went to the Ivy League school, but really the only thing that you can do to separate yourself is to put in the extra work, is to get up on the Saturday and write the seminar that, uh, description that you want to write or to write the article or to do the ancillary things to your practice in order to get ahead and be put yourself in a good position he's like it's like working out everyone knows that you should do it the only question is who's getting up early to do it and the person this week who said I only have to work 35 to 40 hours did I send them on to my client to have them interviewed <laughs> because my client would call me after the interview and say, uh, Bob, uh, I don't care if this person is the Einstein of real estate. There's no way this job's going to be done in 40 hours. No way. Right. So, anyway. <laughs> Bob, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on. Enjoyed being here. Thank you. financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solution Center, Shankings, Tepper Kimball, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacity.